1: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Rander Melcher, and I'm really excited today to be interviewing two authors who have written a fascinating and incredibly helpful book that brings together uh, law and history and practical politics titled Menstruation Matters, Challenging the Law's Silence on Periods, published by NYU Press in 2022. In the book, Dr. Bridget Crawford and Dr. Emily Goldwaldman um, explore the role of law in menstruation, um, which is something that affects A large portion of any population, and yet is something that the law doesn't seem to talk that much about um, in many contexts, and particularly the book focuses often, though not exclusively, on uh, the American legal context. Um, So it's a really interesting book that brings together a lot of things that are quite relevant uh, to today for people studying a lot of different things and also just living their lives in the world. So thank you so much, Bridget and Emily, for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Could we start off, please, by you each introducing yourselves and then explain sort of how you came together to write the book Um, arbitrarily? Maybe we'll start with Bridget.
2: Sure. I am Bridget Crawford. I am a professor at Pace University in New York. I am a tax and trust and estates lawyer by training and practiced law in a big firm in New York for about seven years before making the jump to full-time academics, a a fairly standard um, career trajectory for legal academics in the U.S. And I've been uh, teaching for about 19 years, primarily writing about taxation and gender and the overlap between the two.
0: And I am Emily Goldwaldman and I am Bridget's colleague. I also teach at the law school of Pace University located in New York and my specialties are constitutional law, employment law and education law and I joined the faculty in 2006 um, after having clerked for a federal judge and working at a law firm for a few, few years before that.
1: Brilliant and how did you two decide to write this book together?
2: The book came about a very organically. I had been working on a project involving taxation and human rights. I came across several mentions of the tax on menstrual products and presented my work in progress to an informal gathering of colleagues at our home institution. And in that presentation, I mentioned that there were four states in U.S. states seeking to challenge the so-called tampon tax, the tax imposed on menstrual products, which in the U.S. is a sales tax, challenging it as unconstitutional. And Emily, being a constitutional law scholar, said, hey, what's, what exactly is the challenge there? And uh, the more we talked, the more we decided to write one article, which turned into two articles and led us to this book.
0: Yeah, exactly. It really did come about as the result of my hearing about Bridget's work, and I became very intrigued by the constitutional questions um, surrounding whether states could exempt other products from sales tax when they weren't exempting menstrual products, i.e. some products were being exempted on grounds that they were necessary, and yet menstrual products weren't. And so I was interested Mm -hmm. in thinking through the constitutional issues there.
1: Well, that's a perfect uh, next step for me as the interviewer. Thank you very much for that wonderful setup, because I'd love to start with that um, question as we kind of take a highlights tour of the book. Um, This is obviously a tax on menstrual products. So while it's colloquially known as the tampon tax, that's probably a generalization. Um, But could you briefly explain kind of what the tax is, um, either in the US context or more generally? But... Specifically, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of tell us a little bit about what you've just mentioned. How is it unconstitutional?
2: So let, I'll give a little background on what is the tampon tax itself, and um, Emily can walk us through some of the intriguing constitutional arguments. So um, in a lot of Europe, this might be called a VAT, a value-added tax in other parts of the world, a GST, a goods and service tax. In the U.S., we don't have a, a, a national-level tax on products that are sold Uh, We have a sales tax imposed by states, and generally speaking, all products that one might buy, a pencil, a notebook, uh, a a phone, for example, are subject to tax unless they're explicitly put on to a list of exempt products. And various states have, uh, over the years, developed lists of exempt products that don't exactly track neatly the division between necessities and non necessities or or luxuries but that's a a good enough explanation to make a long story short when we started out this project in uh, back in 2016 a small handful um, of states fewer than uh, six had put menstrual products on the on the tax exempt list but our home state of New York had not. And we started getting very interested in a lawsuit uh, brought by um, a, a group called Period Equity here in New York, run by amazing lawyers and activists, Laura Strausfield and Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, arguing this is unconstitutional. And Emily really at, sort of helped us analyze this from different perspectives.
0: Yeah. So I'll take over there. The real question is, does it amount to unconstitutional sex discrimination when other products are getting exempt from sales tax? Often, as I mentioned, on grounds that they are necessities and yet menstrual products, which are necessities that are very closely tied to the female reproductive system, are still being taxed. And so the thing that makes it a little bit tricky is that The Supreme Court has been clear about how to analyze it when you have a law that right on its face is saying that men and women are going to be treated differently. Then it's known as a facial sex classification. Right on the face of the law, you see it. When it's something like treating menstrual products differently, that on its face isn't saying women or females, but obviously it's very closely linked to that. And so that was the thing that we explored. And our argument is that it should be seen as unconstitutional sex discrimination, that basically menstrual products can be seen as enough of a proxy for female sex, that treating them differently from analogous necessities, so say bandages, which also absorb blood, that treating them differently really amounts to a facial sex classification. It's not literally facial, but that it should be treated the same way we also argue that even if you don't buy that even if all you think is that there's what's called a disparate impact on women even there you can make out a constitutional claim if you can show that there was some sort of intent to have that result normally you would show that intent you would need to show some sort of animus toward the sex that were being that was being disfavored we're not arguing that menstrual products were left out out of some sort of intentional animus toward women. But we do think that they were left out due to stigma and silence surrounding menstruation and menstrual products. And that that's a form of animus too.
1: And I would love to kind of ask you to almost broaden that a little bit uh, because you talk about in the book, uh, there's not just this one tax, right? It's part of this wider conversation of, Silence of stigma, of just a lot of kind of uncertainty of whether the law is involved at all and what is happening. And so you talk in the book as well about something called menstrual capitalism, um, as well as menstrual equity. And I'm wondering if we can maybe expand out from this one particular type of tax. And can you tell us a bit about what you mean in the book um, by menstrual capitalism and how it relates to menstrual equity?
2: Absolutely. So we are fascinated by the ways that uh, menstrual products uh, are marketed and sold. And this isn't just tampons and pads. It's other um, uh, other menstrual products uh, that will uh, start at tampons and pads, but sort of include menstrual cups and other products or services like Uh, period underwear, period subscription boxes, products that companies are trying to sell to folks who menstruate. And often that marketing and selling is done through feminist messaging that employs empowerment rhetoric and themes of menstrual equity, the notion that the period shouldn't get in anyone's way, companies are really attempting to create a halo effect in order to generate more business for their commercial enterprises that are at their core profit-seeking businesses um, that derive their gains from the bodies of those who menstruate. That's not to critique capitalism itself, although a worthy project, uh, a a worthy project standing on its own, the critique of capitalism, what we are trying to do in the book is to draw attention to to that complex interaction, profit motives, the history of stigma and shame, and technological advances uh, that we think they advance our knowledge, our understanding of menstruation, but also at the same time invite scrutiny of the menstruating body, and occasionally employ stereotypes about stigma and shame. You don't need a multi-hundred-dollar euro or a hundred-dollar or a hundred-euro period blanket to have uh, intimate sexual activity with your partner until, or you don't even think you need one, until companies sort of create this um, desire. So we're looking at those um those uh, those interactions stigma shame profit uh and technology all all together and of course period apps uh are on the radar screen uh, more importantly than ever in the US because of the decision in Dobbs
1: absolutely um i i love that idea of you don't think it exists until suddenly it's advertised at you and then you go oh do i need that um i think that's an example that resonates with a lot of us in a lot of ways um, Emily, do you want to add anything to that, or has Bridget wonderfully covered it? She
0: wonderfully covered it. <laughs> great really good summary of all of it. I'm not going to add anything.
1: Fair enough. Um, so, I obviously we're not going to be able to cover every detail um, or every aspect that's in the book, unfortunately. Um, but I'd love to kind of run through some of the main ways you think the law can be more involved um, in menstruation equity. And one of the really key literal locations of this is in schools, um, both in the US um, and you look at some things that have been done creatively abroad or have made a difference. Um, So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how the law can help increase menstrual equity and access to menstrual products in school environments.
0: So With schools, what we have focused on so far is not so much the Constitution, but more Title IX, which is a United States statute that um, tries to make sure that there is equal educational opportunity in schools. So that any schools that are receiving federal funding cannot discriminate on the basis of sex and are really supposed to be making sure that there's equal educational opportunity. And so our argument with respect to Title IX has been that in situations where students either aren't going to school or are leaving school early um, because their periods start unexpectedly and they don't have products, that really the, the sort of spirit of Title IX should put on schools the obligation to provide products to students. Now so far there's no explicit law sort of interpretation of Title IX saying that, but we believe that it would be appropriate, for example, for the Department of Education to issue regulations suggesting that schools need to make sure that students who don't have menstrual products, Um, can get them. In addition, what's really been interesting is that a lot of states on their own now have been passing laws requiring public schools to provide menstrual products um, to their students, at the very least students who can't afford them on their own. So on states, we actually have had movement, even though so far the federal government hasn't really been doing anything explicit to schools.
1: Mm. Um, I think that's really interesting. And There's a lot of that's in the book um, about kind of why this is so necessary, why it matters so much in the school environment. And I think probably for people listening to the podcast um, who have menstruated while in a school environment, um, a lot of those examples are probably very visceral and perhaps obvious. Mm -hmm. Um, But given that we probably have listeners who have not experienced menstruation themselves in a school environment, um, might I ask one of you to give us maybe one example of kind of how this could be important in a school environment?
0: Sure. So, I mean, this can come up even for people who know that they have started menstruating. Uh, people don't always know when they're going to get their periods. And this is especially true for adolescents when their cycles are particularly irregular. So this can come up that the student is at school and all of a sudden their period starts and they don't have products with them, say they're in the bathroom. And so now they're sort of in a quandary of what to do, right? Like, how are they going to leave the bathroom? They need a product. A product isn't there for them. And so that's a very sort of just visceral example of being caught unprepared. There may be other students who know that they have their periods. They can't afford to buy products. And so now they're feeling like they need to stay home because they're scared of menstruating in school and not having a product with them. Another example, take Um, schools that have policies where students aren't allowed to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of class, right? And there can be situations where someone has an emergency where they need to, like they're bleeding through a pad or a tampon or something like that. There can be situations where schools require everyone to wear light colored pants or skirts as part of their uniform. So there are a number of examples where actually menstruating or the fear of menstruating and having that somehow be um, revealed at school in terms of staining is something that prompts students to leave school or stay home. Mm.
1: Thank you for explaining that. And I think it does a really um, helps a lot to link some of the things you both have already talked about, right? The idea of not being able to afford, it goes back to the idea of an unfair tax. Um, The idea of the fear of something being a barrier, as well as it actually possibly happening, goes back to the idea of the silence um, and the stigma around it. Um, but it's not just in educational settings where the law could do more to help with this. Uh, You also talk in the book about laws that exist and probably need to change, um, as well as ways in which the law could help um, around this kind of issue in the workplace. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So
0: in the workplace, um, menstruation can come up in a couple of different contexts. So one context can be situations where, in some ways, almost similar to schools. You can have certain workplaces that have very restrictive rules. Um, I'm talking about factories and things like that. Places where um, there was a study on this a number of years ago, I think involving chicken factories, something like that. It was basically where employees were getting such limited bathroom breaks that they weren't even able to attend to it when they needed when they had their periods and needed to change their pads or tampons and things like that. Right. So at the very basic level, it can be things like that, like people not being able to even leave to go to the bathroom. There can also be situations where in the workplace, people are subjected to discrimination or harassment for menstruating. So for example, an unexpected beginning of menstruation um, where someone leaks onto a chair or something like that, and then being reprimanded or even losing their jobs for that. Then another example can be situations where you have employees who have certain menstruation related conditions where they may need accommodations in the workplace, whether those are extra bathroom breaks, they're suffering from severe pain related to their menstruation, where they might need to be able to work remotely at certain times of the month. So it can come up in all of these different contexts of not being able to just attend to your menstruation as needed, um, discrimination, harassment, sort of bigger picture accommodations. One of the things that Bridget and I have also started thinking about is menopause-related discrimination in the workplace, which is, of course, very closely connected to menstruation discrimination.
1: Mm. And what sorts of, um, you, you talk about in the book kind of, and you've just mentioned there, like some maybe smaller uh, changes or interventions, as well as some kind of more radical structural ones. Um, And you discuss in the book that some of these kind of are already being enacted in some cases or could kind of easily be put into place. Um, But one of the ones that at least has been in the public consciousness um, pretty recently, uh, especially around changes in uh, policy, I believe it's in Spain um, has been around menstrual leave. And Mm -hmm. yet you do discuss this in the book and Argue that actually, maybe this isn't the thing that is necessarily going to um, be the most equitable or has some problems around kind of that being an intervention that could work. Um, So, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that.
0: Sure, I'll take that one. Um,
1: So, one of the things
0: that we thought about a lot in the book is why, in certain areas, is the menstrual equity movement um, gathering a lot of steam and momentum? but not necessarily so much in other areas. And what we've noticed is that in the areas so far, at least in the United States, where there has been progress, it has been very related to product-based changes. So a number of states have been responsive to the idea of lifting the so-called tampon tax on menstrual products. You have states that have been passing laws requiring schools to provide menstrual products. This has all, There's also been progress in terms of making sure that prisoners, both federal prisoners and now increasingly in some states, some state prisoners, are getting the menstrual products that they need without ridiculous things like being charged for them. Right. So the progress that has been made so far has really been centered around products. And we try to unpack why that is. And I'm setting this up in contrast to men, something like menstrual leave, which we don't think would garner the same sort of support in the United States. With products... There is a pretty clear understanding, right, that everybody who menstruates needs menstrual products. There aren't concerns that someone's lying and they need a menstrual product when they don't. There isn't the idea that providing menstrual products to menstruating people is in some way depriving other people of a product that they need. And with menstrual leave, we looked at, in particular, one study that was trying to unpack how people in the United States would feel about the idea of laws that required employers to give menstrual leave. And they, there were a lot of concerns, at least in the survey participants, about feeling like, well, not everyone is necessarily entitled to menstrual leave, right? It really, people's experience of menstruation really varies, you know what if you have people then who are taking advantage in addition what about all the people left at work if someone is out on menstrual leave then everyone else has to sort of share the load of their job and i'm not we're not necessarily saying that those are great arguments but we think there's a potential first of all we think it's unlikely that there would be sort of the political support for menstrual leave and we think it's potential that there's potential that there would be backlash and we think it's because of those reasons of everybody would like to have You know, some more time off from work, and that there is going to be resentment. There's going to be concerns about people taking advantage. What's interesting too is in the countries that have menstrual leave, which particularly so far have been more in East Asia, it seems that female employees are often very reluctant to take that leave. That they they don't necessarily want to reveal that they're menstruating. They are concerned that if they take the leave, it will make them look like you know less dedicated, hardworking employees. So it's not so clear to us that that is really the solution as opposed to broader based policies that provide more flexibility for all employees so that it's not sort of setting up menstruation as this special thing that needs to be treated differently from everything else. When it comes to products, there is something specific. Menstrual products are specific. But when it comes to things like leave that It seems more politically um, feasible to have it as part of, like, a broader strategy toward making workplaces more accommodating and flexible. Hmm. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do
1: it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I think that makes um, a lot of sense and thank you for explaining that. I think it brings up, um, as I said at the beginning, kind of the breadth of what you two have done in this book, the fact that there are some really clear kind of practical, you know, state by state, this state can do this, that state can do this, um, as well as kind of that this raises into more of the consciousness, the bigger questions that because of the stigma and silence, just no one's really asked about how we treat menstruation, menopause, et cetera, um, in society. Bridget, do you want to come in?
2: I think that uh, those questions of of silence, stigma, shame are even more salient in the wake of the Supreme Court's, the United States Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, that repeals the well settled law of Roe versus Wade, allowing, uh, at least in the first trimester, decisions about uh, pregnancy termination to be between a woman and her doctor. Now that that right will be rolled back in many states in the United States, women will be disadvantaged as prospective or current employees. If they need abortion care, they will be um, at the mercy of uh, employers that are voluntarily in uh, offering, for example, Uh, to pay for employees to go to states where abortion is legal to get that care uh, if they're so fortunate to work for a company that does. But uh, certainly just um, as job candidates, the likelihood that someone will get pregnant um, and uh, not have a choice about whether to remain pregnant um, may cause certain employers to start taking pregnancy into account, if not formally, which is illegal as a matter of law, but informally. And so uh, this this Dobbs decision has brought new heightened attention to the reproductive uh, capacity of half of all employees. And um, that is something I'm very concerned about going forward in terms of uh, poverty, the gendered aspects of poverty, uh, women's entries uh, into uh, the professions and the ability to access and complete higher education.
1: Um, I think that even obviously the most recent court decision um, only came out quite recently. So obviously it was not something that you knew when writing the book. Um, but I think that in a lot of ways it speaks to uh, the importance of the book and the importance of bringing these topics into conversation um, because it is not just immediately relevant in terms of kind of, oh, that's the headline of today, but has such a direct impact on so many people's like actual day-to-day lives. Um So, I wanted to kind of continue the tour a little bit of some of the main points of the book. Um, And one of them kind of stays on the topic of um, sort of headlines and kind of other political issues that intersect with this. You know, for anyone that might think that menstruation is sort of a niche issue, um, I think this discussion already shows that that's probably not true. Um, And this was another element of it around the environmental impact of menstrual products and environmental sustainability. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about kind of how or what role the law could have in ensuring that um, environmental sustainability isn't at cross purposes with menstrual equity. You know, how can we
2: make those things actually work together? So by sustainability, we're really talking about economic equity. We're talking about uh, safety, health uh, for current future generations and preservation of the environment and the planet's natural resources it, it's important to begin the conversation by uh, acknowledging just how little is known about menstrual products contents uh, or long-term impacts you can learn more about uh, the makeup you put on your face than you can learn about the products that are used uh, on or in the human body for um, Several days every month for uh, many years at a time because there simply aren't disclosure laws, except in uh, arguably two states, Uh, disclosure laws requiring manufacturers to tell you what's in these products. So we'll start with the issue of disclosure. The law obviously has a lot to add there, but that's not enough because disclosure just shifts the burden onto the consumer to navigate uh, multi-syllable words that are unlikely for even the most educated person to understand how they may interact with the human body. So disclosure laws would be where we would start, but they're not enough. We also um, uh, need to uh, look at uh, How menstrual products are disposed of, uh, and certainly um, menstrual products can be an extraordinary strain on uh, sewage and water systems. We look at uh, what goes into uh, products, uh, even if we knew exactly the contents. There is a whole lot of plastic and uh, unrecyclable uh, parts associated with menstrual products. And, and we think the, the law most certainly could intervene there. We're also intrigued by private procurement as an option. What would it look like if menstrual products were required in all federal buildings in the country, for example, and what if the law required those products to conform to certain sustainability standards, both in terms of the contents of the products and their biodegradability? Um, What if companies that decide to provide these products for employees Uh, agreed that they would only use sustainable products, that could really change the market a great deal so that manufacturers would start shifting uh, their fabrication and marketing practices.
1: And I'd love to kind of follow up on something you mentioned, kind of the if we knew what was even in them, why don't we know what's in them?
2: Uh, We don't know what's in them because in the United States, um, the uh, classification of menstrual products is as a class two medical device along the lines of bedpans, for examples, that might be used in a hospital setting. And there is no requirement under federal law that those who manufacture class two medical products guarantee the safety of those products. Uh, or uh, disclose 100% what is in them. We have a state law in New York now that requires companies uh, to disclose those things that have been voluntarily added to the uh, the products, um, such as fragrance, which has no place in a menstrual product. Um, uh, but we don't have a, a federal law requiring disclosure or demonstrated safety. And that to me speaks volumes about the silence and stigma associated with menstruation, that this was never the proper subject of uh, public legislation, but also the blatant disregard for the health of those who do menstruate.
1: I think that does speak volumes, in fact. Um, So thank you for... um highlighting that for the listeners. I'd love to kind of stay on this idea of silence and perhaps uh, more explicitly breaking that silence as obviously your book is part of that conversation. Um, And the book talks about um, kind of the growing awareness of menstruation equity, of uh, perhaps younger generations um, being more willing to be open about menstruation um, and that really kind of making a difference on a lot of different levels, um, though not yet, obviously, as your book demonstrates, on the law, but hopefully. Um, and yet, there's also a lot of other things happening around gender um, in the public debate at the moment. So, I found one of the uh, one of the practical elements of the book, one of the actual elements, was the discussion around um, how legal arguments for menstruation equity can focus on a particular population of people who menstruate that need kind of this advocacy, but on the other hand, doesn't um, exclude um, other voices that have been historically excluded or marginalized um, in the same, often in sort of the same or overlapping realms of debates around or related to gender. Um, So I'm wondering if you can maybe share a little bit of that um, in the interview about how these legal arguments and advocacy around menstruation can nonetheless take into account um, the growing awareness and wider debate about inclusive gender language?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's something that we devoted a whole chapter to in the book, um, which we called menstruating while male, but it's obviously a broader question than that. Um, so here's really the puzzle to think about. I mentioned earlier that when you're thinking about the constitutional arguments against something like the tampon tax the sort of clearest, most straightforward argument in terms of fitting it into existing constitutional doctrine is to say, well, this is sex discrimination, right? Menstrual products are so closely tied to female sex that if you're treating them worse from a tax perspective, it's basically equivalent to treating women worse than men. And from a con law perspective, that really sort of fits. That's how constitutional law arguments are made. And the challenge is, is that precisely at the same time that you're seeing this growing menstrual advocacy movement and people becoming more aware of these sorts of disparities and trying to press these arguments that it's sex discrimination, parallel to that you have the fact that there is much more awareness than there ever was before about people who are trans, non-binary, et cetera, and the recognition that not everybody who menstruates um, is a woman. That there are also trans men who are menstruating. There are non-binary people who are menstruating. So there's a little bit of this tension between trying to say, well, treating menstrual products worse amounts to sex discrimination. You're treating women worse while also trying to acknowledge that not everybody who menstruates is a woman. And it was something that even sort of public interest groups, the ACLU, things like that, places like that were really trying to navigate. Like, how do you make these arguments for policy changes that are desirable, like getting rid of the tampon tax without falling into the idea of, well, it's purely a women's issue. It's only women who menstruate. And so in the book, we say there are really these two important, equally important goals. And one is trying to achieve policy change, and to do that you need to have the sort of clearest most effective legal arguments, but another equally important point is to be inclusive and to recognize that not everyone who identifies who menstruates identifies as woman. As a woman is a woman. And so the way that we try to sort of pull those two things together is to say that emphasizing that many policies that disadvantage menstruation or people who menstruate, they do have their bases in sexism and stigma around menstruation. And so they need to be changed. And then that change will redound to the benefit of everyone who menstruates. Right. So that making the argument that these policies are rooted in sexism shouldn't be seen as saying that the only people who menstruate are women. And you can sort of hold both things in your head. And I think we have to because that's really the path to legal reform and inclusivity around
1: menstruation. Wonderful. Um, Thank you for sort of summarizing that so clearly, both the logic of it and also what kind of we need to do. We need to hold two things in our head. Okay, I I think we can do that. Um, that's a relatively clear call to action. And as we come then to sort of towards the end of um, the interview, I want to ask about perhaps not the elephant in the room, because there are probably many, um, but I'd love to ask you about kind of how COVID, how the pandemic, how um, having literal freedom of movement um, curtailed for all sorts of people um, and huge numbers of people, how has the pandemic impacted conversations around menstruation, as well as policies around it?
2: I think COVID, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which is certainly ongoing, um, has brought into stark relief just how necessary menstrual products are, but not just menstrual products, education related to menstruation, care surrounding reproductive-associated Uh, functions all over the world. And being unable to leave one's house or to uh, freely attend school or doctor's appointments, for example, has, um, has made accessing that education and care As difficult as it has been in many places to access the products themselves. We really take a 360 degree uh, approach to uh, the ways that menstruation matters. And it's not just the products, but it's also education and healthcare and environment and sustainability. And COVID impacted absolutely every aspect of that.
1: Emily, is there anything you want to add to that?
0: I would say that just, I think. In some ways, there were the fact that people who never before even had, had experienced this sort of scarcity running out of products like toilet paper and menstrual products, now as a result of the pandemic did experience it. It sort of did raise everyone's awareness a little bit of how scary and limiting it can be to not have the products that you need um, to sort of manage your, your life, your bodily needs. I I think in that way, it's been interesting. I think it's sort of raised people's sensitivities.
1: I'm wondering if um, I can ask you to a bit about kind of the process, obviously, of putting the book together. Um, As you said, it did seem to grow up very organically out of kind of, oh, this question, and oh, let's write an article about that. Oh, look, okay, wait, now it's kind of growing a little bit. Um, And this is obviously something that you two have a lot of expertise in, coming from a bunch of different angles, um, and have worked with a lot of people outside of, the two of you as well, but I'm wondering if there was anything um, in the research process or putting this book together or anything
2: like that that maybe surprised you when you came across it? I would say it's been incredibly surprising to us how very little research there is in in the area of all things associated with um, sort of reproductive function. Um, our, Our next project will very likely involve a a close look at the opposite end of the uh, menstruation-related cycle and menopause itself. And there is an area where there's not a lot of research um, about exactly what menopause is, how it happens, why it happens, and what its effects are. Although we know some of the basics about menstruation, there's not a whole lot of research about menstrual disorders, bleeding disorders, and other aspects of, of health associated with menstruation, uh, as well as the lack of research around menstrual products that we mentioned before.
0: I think something that surprised me um, in a good way is just how much progress there has been in the last five or so years, really since 2015. So I guess it's a little bit more than five years, but just how on a number of fronts and to some extent sort of happening in parallel and connected have been, there's just been so much progress in terms of countries and also states here, getting rid of the tampon tax, passing laws about menstrual products in schools and menstrual products in jails. There's obviously a lot more to be done, but if you think back, Before sort of 2015, I don't even think this was really sort of on people's radar at all. And then it took off in a really kind of explosive way. And it's continued and the successes have built on each other and social media continues to raise awareness and amplify the issue. And so I didn't realize when we started the book, how much of it would be a story about how political and legal change happened. I thought we'd be talking about what do the laws say and what should they say, but it really has been interesting at just looking at how does a campaign happen and what have been the wins.
1: That's a very optimistic note, um, I think, to come towards the end of the interview. On so, thank you very much, uh, both of you, for sort of sharing that as the people closest, obviously, to the book, kind of your experience of it. Um, And Bridget, you mentioned a little bit about kind of that next project. Um, but as the sort of traditional last question, um, is a, is the next thing for both of you a book on menopause
2: and the law or something else? We certainly are working in the menopause area and we're carrying over this interest in how law changes and how social attitudes change to imagine a multi-generational movement uh, to advocate at the intersection of ageism Uh, discrimination and gender. One of the things in writing the book Menstruation Matters that uh, struck us is how important young people have been in pushing for the conversation about menstrual equity and imagining that same kind of energy transferred into a broader equity space is very inspiring for both of us.
1: Amazing. Um, That sounds like a fascinating and also incredibly important um, topic. So I'm really glad to hear that two such wonderful people are working on it. Um, But while you go off and work on that next project, listeners can read uh, the book that we've primarily been talking about this episode, uh, which as a reminder is titled Menstruation Matters, Challenging the Law's Silence on Periods, published by NYU Press in 2022, Dr. Bridget Crawford and Dr. Emily Gold-Waldman, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.